Hello and welcome to another installment of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. Today's episode deals with the gaze, that is, the power of eyes seeing and being seen. The gaze has been a favorite subject of scholars in the social sciences and humanities, influenced by the approaches of psychoanalysis and the work of Jacques Lacan in particular. But human fascination with the eyes of others is much older. In fact, the notion of what is known in English as the evil eye is evidence of a long-standing popular belief in the power of the gaze. In Turkey, today the Mavi Nazarbonju, the little blue eye beads that have practically become a national symbol, are a kind of industrialized manifestation of the various charms used throughout the Mediterranean to ward off the envious or spiteful gaze of the other. This evil eye is known variously as il malocchio in Italian, Nazar in Turkish, and so forth. What lies behind these would-be superstitions is a set of views about the power of envious and hateful glances to cause harm or misfortune to their objects, and thus the belief in the evil eye also points to the psychological impact of such a gaze on the conscious object. Today we'll be discussing the way scholars in different disciplines have engaged with the topic of the gaze and eyes in general, and we're excited to have with us Dan Pontillo, a PhD student working on cognitive science and linguistics, who has a background in vision science and eye tracking, and will be offering insights into the eyes from a variety of perspectives. Dan, thanks for coming back on the podcast. It's great to be here, Chris. So I think a good place to start our discussion is with Lacan, and his idea of the gaze, or in French, le regard. To Lacan, the gaze is merely the notion of being observed. Uh, it's the anxiety that follows from the, the, the uh, realization that you are a manifestation of other objects and humans' observations of you. Um, for a child growing up, the initial realization that you are, in fact, displaying yourself to others and people can scrutinize and observe you at any time can be a very traumatic psychological experience or something that influences your psychology tremendously. Lacan, being a psychoanalyst, is especially interested in the effects that this can have on your behavior and your outlook on life. The anxiety that accompanies this awareness and knowledge of the gaze is related to the fact that it's unnameable and beyond the capacity for language and symbol to describe it. It's as if the void is looking into you and you have no way of escaping. And in this regard, I think it's uh, the example that Lacan uses in, maybe in one of his lectures of a dark window at night. Yes, that's, that's a great example. Uh, even though there's probably no one on the other side of that dark window, or maybe there is, either way you can't see, and so there's an instinct to avoid the dark window, shut the blinds. The, the mere notion that somebody could be gazing in influences our behaviors right and influences our psychology vice versa somebody who does not realize they're being observed will behave in a very different manner and i think this is fairly obvious from examples from uh, daily life a lot of criticism has been leveled at lacan uh, for inventing this this set of jargon to describe concepts that might otherwise be very easily understood through normal language but a lot of people feel that it is a useful framework and a way of thinking about about this this phenomenon, and therefore it's it's worth understanding the the terminology. 
But it's also easy to see how this could be considered charlatanism and fraud by somebody outside of the field. You mean the podcast or Lacan psychoanalysis? I mean, I mean, in general. Like, yeah, generally. Everything. Yes, we should always keep that in mind. <laughs> now, speaking of such topics, I'd like to move to Foucault, the most cited author currently in the humanities and social sciences. Foucault talks about the gays in a variety of ways. I think one of the most interesting is in his discussion of the uh, the prison and discipline and punishment. Foucault talks about how the gays or the gays effect can be used as a means of controlling. He talks about the layout of a prison or a military camp where watchtowers that ostensibly see all that is taking place control and condition the behavior of the inmates and inhabitants not through any kind of coercive measures in the classic sense but by serving as a reminder of the surveillance and the fact that one is always being watched. Now obviously in Foucault's model there's a big emphasis on the uh, all-encompassing reach of this power and of course it's worth looking at the ways that objects of the gaze subvert, subvert its power. This ties into the notion of legibility and the different ways that states quote-unquote see their subjects. And of course I'm referring in part to the work of James C. Scott in Seeing Like a State, where he explains the ways in which states monitor and gather information about their population, and it really gives you a whole other perspective on well, at least today, mundane activities like census collection and gathering statistics. We understand as Ottoman historians now why Ottoman subjects would almost instinctively flee any sort of government official who is looking for information or asking questions. It's impossible to understand or reconstruct Ottoman society or, or what this, uh, the relationship between the state and society would have been like without understanding this implicit game always taking place between, on one hand, the gaze of uh, the state, and on the other hand, the subject that tries to avoid that gaze or becomes conditioned because of that gaze. This is extremely important for understanding this power dynamic. And I'll just briefly mention some of the other ways in which scholars have utilized this notion of the gaze to develop theories about um, identity and the role of the gaze in conditioning individuals' identity and self-identification. One of the areas where the issue of the gaze has been most influential has been in the study of gender, race, and other aspects tied to identity. For example, the pervasive male gaze, the would-be objectifier of women, has been described as one of the key ways in which female gender identity is constructed. In other words, women become the object of a male gaze and are conscious of its potential expectations or judgments, and this intangible force shapes their behavior and the way they self-identify. Now immediately when we start to talk about this application of the power of the gaze, we run into the problem of how do we measure, how do we define the true power of the gaze? We know that it's a force in the abstract sense, but how do we understand its real impact? One author, Afsane Nejmabadi, who deals with the history of Iran, in an interesting work called Women with Mustaches, Men Without Beards, explored a way in which she argues the gaze of the West, and in particular uh, Victorian Europe in the 19th century, uh, changed the way that men in Iran 
deal with no issues of gender and sexuality. What she argues is that there was basically a, a progression from a relatively positive attribution to homoerotic representations of men or homoeroticism within elite circles in Iran that over the course of a few centuries transformed into really a kind of homophobia. And she argues that this was in part of the fact that Iranian elite men became aware of how Europeans were viewing and judging their sexual and gender norms. This, uh, in theory, applies to much of the Muslim Middle East and uh, the Ottoman Empire, not just in the area of sex, but in elite circles that were becoming aware of how Europe viewed their society's cultures and mores. And there are a number of works that deal with the impact of various colonial, imperial, or oriental gazes in this vein. Now, the, here I want to stop on one more point about the gaze, which is that the gazer, the one who is observing, becomes discovered. And this changes the way that they gaze, right? There's a, dynam a dynamic here. It's not just the watchtower in Foucault's prison camp, but it's also that, that the gazer, like a voyeur who's been discovered, changes once he or she has been discovered. For example, look what happened to the field of uh, what used to be called Orientalism and now is variously labeled Middle East Studies, Arabic and Islamic Studies, Ottoman History. Um, when Edward Said publishes a book like Orientalism and suddenly scholars become aware that the way they have been viewing the quote-unquote East has been detected, right? They change the way they write history. That's a really interesting uh, insight. I think that you could argue that uh, a reverse gaze effect, if you want to call it that, has led to a major shift in the way people represent the Middle East, in the West at least. So the gaze was redirected onto scholars and they realized their implicit biases during Preci their own gaze. Precisely, and merely through the fear of being perceived in such a way as Edward Said portrays uh, all of Western scholarship and Orientalism, they've changed the way they write. Albert Memmi talks about this in The Colonizer and the Colonized. One of the interesting things about that work is that he discusses, obviously in a very Manichaean, like, binary way, discusses the various psychological implications of the colonial relationship from his experience in uh, colonial Tunisia. And what I think is one of the most interesting insights he makes is, are some of the things he says about the psychological impact of colonialism on the colonizer. For example, he talks about the moment when the colonizer realizes that he's the colonizer. And he asks, will he accept being a colonizer under the growing habit of privilege and illegitimacy, under the constant gaze of the usurped? Will he adjust to this position and his inevitable self-censure? In other words, he says, how does the colonizer deal with the constant gaze of the oppressed. It's something tantamount to the psychological relationship between the jailer and the uh, prisoner, right? Sure. They almost don't have any direct contact, but they look out at each other and both know that they are under each other's gaze. That makes sense. So to sum up what I'm saying, I think that many scholars have picked up on the importance of, quite simply, eyes in human society and history, the importance of seeing and being seen. But what's interesting in all of this scholarship is we lack any way of, as I mentioned before, measuring the impact of the gaze. We can see it in effect, but we don't know 
what its true power is, you know, within the complex matrix of different forces in human society. This is the fundamental problem of studying human cognition, in a way. We try to understand what happens underneath the hood of the human mind, with only a limited number of windows onto it. And uh, as I understand, one of the best windows is the eyes. Is that not correct? Well, one methodology that is definitely growing and uh, becoming more and more popular is eye tracking. Basically, what eye tracking would be, in theory, is observing the gaze of a, of a person, right? That's right. Tracking the movements that the eye makes as it observes a scene or an environment. At this point, I'll, I'll step back for a minute and describe what I mean by eye movements. Uh, it might be common knowledge, but your eye actually is constantly in a state of moving from fixation to fixation throughout its observation of a scene. The reason is that within the retina, there's only a small patch of high acuity that needs to be moved around and swept across the scene in order for you to actually perceive it with any clarity. Right, and this was an important discovery when they found that when people read, their eyes don't just scroll evenly across the page, but they actually make very small movements That's from right. left to right. And these movements are called saccades. They're rapid ballistic movements engaged by the muscles that surround the eye. And so within the framework of vision, vision science, the gaze is what? The gaze is these fixations? Right. So a fixation entails a period of gaze. That's the generally accepted use of the term. There are other more convoluted definitions of gaze that have to do with the total looking time on a given object, but for the time being we can assume that gaze simply means a period of static fixation. Actually putting your eyes directly on something. So in psychology and cognitive science and a couple of other disciplines, uh, people use devices to measure the coordinates in the scene at which people are fixating. Uh, these devices can be worn on the head or they can be embedded in screens and used to project exactly that location onto the scene that's being observed. And so when doing experiments using eye trackers, the obvious question being after, after what we've said about the power of the gaze, the power of the feeling of being observed, and of course within science, notions such as the observer effect, how can we accurately monitor or observe the gaze of the subjects in these studies? Well, this is a very real problem. Uh, in a lot of situations, the people who are being eye-tracked are fully aware of this fact because of this large device that's sitting in front of them. But there are wearable eye-trackers that people can wear out into the world, and after a certain period of time of wearing, after a certain period of time wearing these devices, people seem to forget that they're actually being measured. Well, that seems hard to judge. Interestingly, if you talk to eye movement researchers, you might hear anecdotes about how it becomes very evident that people begin to forget about the circumstances of the experiment and behave differently with regard to what they look at. There seems to be a uh, categorical shift in the types of eye movement behaviors socially that you see. While people might be ashamed or embarrassed to make certain eye movements if they know they're being observed, once that feeling of being observed wears off, you see eye movements to objects and places that might otherwise be a little sensitive. Such as? Well, for example, women's breasts, genital areas, 
Um, and this goes across gender lines as well. Women tend to look at women's breasts and, and genital areas too. But this is, again, just an anecdote. Do you have any interaction with this notion of the power of the gaze? Yeah, absolutely. One of the reasons we look at eye movements is because we believe that they are a reflection of the underlying cognitive state of the observer. So we can first step back and, and uh, split up the notion of attention into two separate ideas. One of these, overt attention, is reflected in eye movements. We look at things that are interesting in the scene and we move our eyes so that we can get a better view of them. The other is a covert attention. These are specifically periods in which you are focusing attention but without moving your eyes and without focusing on the object that you're interested in. So if you're, if you're thinking about something in your periphery, focusing on it mentally without actually looking at it. As we say, looking at something out of the corner of your eye. That's right. That would be That's covert, covert attention. attention. And so, assuming that most of the time people are not engaging in covert attention behaviors, eye tracking allows you to investigate the object of attention. Do you see, in through your research in eye tracking or the literature, any indication that gaze has a measurable power in society? Well, some researchers look at the communicative power of gaze. We all know that we are aware of what other people are looking at. But researchers have shown that people actually use eye movements and gestures as a way of communicating to other people that they ought to look at something, and as a way of aligning information during conversations. For example, if two people are engaged in a collaborative task, one might otherwise have to describe an object in the scene to the other for the other person to recognize it or take a look at it himself. But a symbolic gesture in the form of an eye movement to that object could be used to convey to the other person that they should look at that object as well. And this is all very fascinating, but it does bring us back to the question or the assertion by some, potentially, that all we're doing here is describing something very obvious through a sophisticated scientific jargon framework. So how can eye tracking be used to tell us new things that we don't realize about eyes and their power? Well, what's really remarkable about eye tracking is how subtle a measure it is and how sensitive it is to uh, things that you might not otherwise pick up on consciously. For example, when you're looking at a simple depiction of some objects and hearing the names of those objects uttered, you actually make saccades or eye movements to the objects that are being mentioned as they are mentioned. And these are, this is something that people are not always conscious of. A great example of how sensitive and subtle this effect is, is seen in work by Jerry Altman. In one experiment, subjects are given the sentence, the cat killed the mice, or alternatively, the cat killed the birds. On the screen, there are a number of pictures, two of which are a depiction of mice and a depiction of feathers. People are so sensitive to the subtle epistemic differences between the verb kills or, and killed that they will actually make predictive saccades to the feathers, preferentially over the mice, when hearing the word killed, knowing that the feathers represent something that has already been killed, while the mice represent something that, are, that is likely to be killed by cats. 
maybe that doesn't seem like a major point, but I think these types of studies have all sorts of ramifications for our understanding of not only linguistics and cognition, but the relationship between the eyes and the brain. Right, exactly. And we can imagine that with findings such as these, that um, in society, maybe people are subconsciously aware of all sorts of small cues that they get from the eyes of others, thereby giving them a window into the cognition of that other, what they're thinking, um, and maybe they don't even realize it. That's exactly right. And where the measure is so sensitive as eye tracking, you have access to things that you would otherwise never be able to recognize through consciousness or simple observation. So to get back to the issue of the power of gaze, uh, one incidental finding from neuroscience has come out of uh, researchers who use macaque monkeys in their studies. Often, these monkeys have to be trained extensively to perform different tasks, and these studies are generally referred to as behaving monkey studies. And one of the rewards used in the training is the privilege for these monkeys to view the face of a dominant male monkey. Um, it turns out that this used as a reward is just as effective as juice or other treat-like rewards. And I think that's very fascinating that, at least within as far as we can understand how these uh, monkeys are interacting, looking at someone or some monkey with a higher social status is actually an act of power so enjoyable that it can be used as a reward and experiment. I think that's very interesting. Exactly. Well, obviously in this discussion of uh, seeing and being seen, we've hit on a lot of topics from social sciences. We've talked about monkeys. We've talked about breasts. And uh, I hope that our listeners have enjoyed and this discussion. And I hope to some extent we've succeeded in rising above merely describing the obvious in more sophisticated terms as we might fear. I hope that listeners have come away from this with a little bit more understanding of the potential relationship between gaze as an abstract concept in humanities and the actual physical process of, of gaze. Yeah, I think there's a, a lot of potential there. Now for Arabic music fans out there, I've, uh, I've learned through my experience with ArabicMusicTranslation.com that of course, in matters of love and romance, in all languages, of course, but particularly within the Arabic language, there is a very complex thing going on with eyes and looking, vision, nazra, and the like. And I'm going to finish this podcast actually by playing you guys a song that you can choose not to listen to. It's not a particularly good so song. It's uh, Nancy Ashram's first single, entitled Shil Ayunik Anni, Take Your Eyes Off of Me. Uh, which obviously sends a complex message within the context of a pop music video. And those who can follow the lyrics will get a new appreciation for what Nancy's saying after listening to this uh, lengthy discussion about the power of gays. Well, Dan, thanks again for coming on the podcast. Always very interesting to have people outside the field of history come on and discuss these topics with us. Yeah, thanks. It was a pleasure. Now, for those of you interested in finding out more, we've got a bibliography on the website. Also, the blog provides space where you can leave your comments and questions or suggestions for future podcasts. That's all for this episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. Thanks for listening, and until next time, take care.